0: 1 to 46, we had covered. These ayat were addressed to the scholars of the Bani Israel. So in Surah Baqarah, it's a very beautiful structure. It first starts off with pretty much an introduction to Islam, an introduction to um, uh, faith, an introduction to um, the uh, uh, Islamic uh, revelation system, and it describes the Genesis story. The beginning with Adam salam and uh, the shaitan. After that, after it's very clear what the message of Islam is والذي والذي تتقون, this statement of, "O mankind, worship your Lord, the one who created you and those who created, and the one who created those before you so that you can achieve Taqwa." And Allah then draws attention to the Quran. If you are in doubt about this revelation being from Allah, so you see how Allah is introducing revelation by making clear its authenticity and what its goals are. Right in the beginning, authenticity, guidance for the mutaqeen. It's authentic and it's the most important piece of scripture in your life because it provides guidance, guidance on where to go in life. And so the function of scripture is mentioned, the call, the 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 actual call to the purpose of life is mentioned. And then we have and then we have the description of the akhirah, of course as well and give glad tidings to the believers about Jannah and, and the, 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 the fruits of Jannah and the fruits of paradise. After this summary, then Allah tells the story because, and this is one of the things that's very interesting about Muslims. The Quran on one angle narrates and shows the narrative and the historical, um, the historical backdrop for the emergence of Islam. But at the other end, it, The Qur'an also separates the concept of Islam from history. Islam becomes something timeless. It's not rooted in a place or a people or a time or a person. Islam is a timeless concept. It doesn't matter where you are, where you come from, what your ancestry is. Islam and the message of Islam is timeless. So on the one hand, you have this concept. And a lot of Muslims, they attach Islam, they attach to Islam in this way. We don't feel like a very strong sense of tradition in regards to, like if you compare to the, the Judeo-Christian narrative, where there's a very strong focus on the stories and the history. Everything is about the stories of the prophets. Everything is about the, um, the way in which people uh, have dealt with things in the past, the land and all these sorts of things. But Muslims really don't find much um, importance or value in all of that. Rather, the focus for Muslims is always just the concept. Ibadah, la ilaha illallah, salah, zakah, hajj, fasting, and that's it. And we're kind of disconnected from a history. Having said that, while that's valid, the Qur'an, if we want to take it in its fullness, and its full richness, we do have to understand that the Qur'an actually does present a narrative. The Qur'an actually does present a history. And this is important for reasons that we're going to come to uh, in a moment. But I wanted to make that point clear about the idea that there is actually a narrative that Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala presents to the reader of the Qur'an. Because right after mentioning the concepts, then Allah mentions the story, Adam alayhi salam. That is the most common story to everyone. Everyone goes back to Adam. After the story of Adam, then Allah starts the Ya Bani Israel. You may think, from Adam all the way to Bani Israel? What's the link here, why? Because as we're going to see through these verses, the Quran sees itself, and Allah is demonstrating that the Quran is part of this story that actually started, obviously largely with Adam, but more approximately, it actually started with Bani Israel. It actually started with the promise to Ibrahim alayhi salam and the promise to his children. That is actually where the story of Islam starts. And as you will see, the richness of the Qur'an, the way in which it engages with the biblical literature and even extra-biblical literature, the way in which it presents a counter-narrative, the way it criticizes, points out double standards, and exposes hypocrisy is something that's really amazing. And so it is important to have some understanding and some backdrop. For anyone who reads Surah Al-Baqarah, they know it's a very challenging juz to get through, that first juz, because it seems like it's speaking to a people with background knowledge. And the way in which it references events, as if the person knows the event. And so sometimes it can be a bit challenging for Muslims to read through it, Because we don't understand the context. So as we're going to go through inshallah ta'ala, we'll be able to shed light on that context. So Allah is addressing Ya Bani because the story of Islam actually starts with this. The story of Islam actually starts with this. The story of Islam starts with Ibrahim alayhi salam's, the promise to Ibrahim alayhi salam, that Allah will make a civilization of Tawheed through his two sons, Ishaq and Ismail. And of course, with this haq, the fulfillment of that promise is going to be the kingdom of Dawood alayhi salam, the kingdom of Sulaiman, and how they rule justly. That's the fulfillment of that promise with this haq. And as we are, you see, the Bani Israel, they rebel afterwards, they kill prophets that are sent. And so they lose that kingdom. And that entire narrative is them trying to get back that kingdom, get back that glory. And deal with the situation that they're in because of what their hands set forward. Now, when it comes to Ismail, السلام, there's only one prophet that is actually a descendant from Ismail, السلام, and it is the Prophet Muhammad. And even in the Bible, in the Bible itself, in Genesis, there is a promise to Ismail, or to the Ibrahim about Ismail, that I will make through your son Ismail a great nation. To this day, you ask the Jews and the Christians, who is this great nation? Who is this great nation? In your own scriptures, Allah has promised Ismail, Ibrahim through Ismail. Ismail is going through his descendants, is going to be a great nation of Iman and faith. What is this great nation? Even the Bani Israel and the Jewish scholars, they will admit this is the Prophet Muhammad Wasallam, because their belief is pure Tawheed. And this is clearly the great nation that has come forward of Islam. The Christians, of course, it's very problematic for them. They say, ah, oh, hasn't come yet. Da, da, da. Oh, I don't know. Oh, oh, it's a great nation because they became very economically great, but not great as in like uh, a valid theology. All this kind of uh, her- hermeneutic gymnastics that they kind of go through. But at the end of the day, it's very clear. The promise has been made to Ibrahim, to, uh, to Ibrahim, both through Ishaq and through Ismail. Now, The point, and I'll give you the main thesis of Juzwan of the Qur'an. The whole point of Juzwan of the Qur'an is to show to the Bani Israel, you have now lost all your chances. You've had hundreds of years, hundreds of years, and dozens upon dozens of prophets sent to you to get back to that glory, to be the force of Tawheed in this world, to spread the light of Tawheed in this world. You've had every chance. And now, here is your last chance with the Prophet Sallallahu Alaihi Wasallam. And of course, they rejected. And so, Juzwan essentially is taking away the divine favor from the Bani Israel, saying, you have now been disqualified, you have lost. We have given you enough chances, and Allah is al halim and al ghafur and you have not believed in the Prophets that were sent, you have not followed the message as I wanted you to follow, And so as a result, you have broken the covenant and the agreement with Allah. Because that's the point. They had a covenant with Allah. If you believe in the messengers that are sent, if you follow the law, if you submit to Allah, if you be Muslim, then Allah will bless you. And one of the blessings was the promised land, which was Palestine. And we're going to bless you with a great nation and blessings, economic, spiritual, all these things. That was the, um, the deal. And of course, They kept breaking it over and over again, rejecting prophet after prophet. Why? Because they wanted to keep their own status. Imagine, you're a rabbi, and you've got like the top position, right? You're the person that everyone goes to. Now all of a prophet prophet comes forward. You're going to lose your status overnight. You're just going to be like the rest of the people. And so then because of that, they would then attack the prophets and say, that's not a real prophet. And they would start smear campaigns against them. And so this is what happened, this pattern of the jealousy of the ulama class, the scholar class, and the obfuscation of scripture, the changing of scripture, so that they could keep their positions. They did that with so many of the prophets, and the last one with Isa alayhi salam, with Jesus. So, Juz 1 is saying, basically, and as you see it, Allah is reminding you, remember when this happened, remember when this happened, remember when this happened, then this happened, then this happened, and this chance, and this chance, and this chance. And then Allah then concludes by saying, it's not about your ethnicity. Just because you're from the bloodline of a particular family, doesn't mean you automatically get divine favor. As if Allah you know, is, uh, is choosing you just purely based on your ethnicity. Rather, it's based on whoever follows the Millat Ibrahim. Whoever follows the Millat Ibrahim, they are the ones who have the most right with Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala. They are the ones who have the most deserving of getting divine favor. And so Juzwan shows that this was was the nation, but now that time has gone. It's the last episode. It's the final. If you look at the the narrative, uh, you know, I I like to, I'll make this analogy. Uh, You know, like in these like series and stuff, if there's ever like an episode uh, or like, Uh, Say there's a new season. Then the first part of the first episode will be like a three, four minute recap of everything that happened before, right? Then it starts the new season. That's what Juz 1 of the Qur'an is. It's a complete recap of everything that happened before. A recap of the entire Old Testament is in Juz 1. This is the recap. Now Juz 2 comes, the inauguration of the new Ummah. The new and final Ummah. That is destined for greatness. Kuntum Ummat al That will be the nation that will carry on the torch of La ilaha illallah in its most purest form, in its most complete form. Al-Yaum dinakum. This day I have completed for you your religion. And I've perfected my favor upon you. And I have made Islam, I'm pleased with Islam as your deen. No more adjustments needed. That is the last dispensation of revelation. So just to inaugurates this new civilization of faith. And that's why it starts with, first it starts with the changing of the Qibla. And that signifies this, that it's no longer towards Bayt al-Maqdis, now it's towards the Ka'aba, a new nation, a new Qibla. And that is how we have made you the middle nation. You are, and wasata some say middle, wasata some say best, because you can say wusta or wasat can mean the best as well. The most balanced is the best that you are the best nation, you are the most balanced nation, and so you are the new nation. No ethnic ties, nothing to do with your race, nothing to do with descendancy, just purely based on whoever follows that pure creed of Tawheed, of worshipping Allah alone, and the dictates of that belief and that purpose, morally, ethically, spiritually, and all those things altogether. That is the new nation. So that is essentially a bit of a summary of uh, the first part of the Qur'an. And that's what I was saying about this narrative. The first part of the Qur'an sets the stage and actually positions us as an ummah, historically speaking, and, and positions us in relation to what has happened in the past. So, uh, as I said, from ayah 41 to 46, we actually saw it was first addressed to the Bani Israel. Last chance, ya Bani Israel. Oh, last chance, all oh scholars of the Bani Israel. Ya Bani Israel. First, Allah Subh'anaHu Wa ta'ala reminds them, right? يَا بَنِي الَّتِي عَلَيْكُمْ Remember my favor upon you. Remember, it was there. I gave you this favor. And this is the first call. Remember the agreement, the pact, the covenant. You're meant to follow the messengers when they come. Look in the scriptures for the signs. You have the cheat code right in front of you. You can see if this is a true prophet or not. So fulfill the covenant. Then I'll fulfill the covenant. You'll be part of the glory of this new prophet that is coming. Then Allah. And believe in what has been sent down, the Quran that has been sent down, this new revelation. Don't be the first ones to reject it. We went through these verses before, and then Allah then shows the things that they used to do in the past. Don't mix the truth with falsehood or cover the truth with falsehood, and then hide the truth. So the Quran is addressing the Bani Israel, the scholars, literally last chance. This is it. Then, We went over these verses. Uh, before, if, uh, if you haven't, um, uh, if you didn't, um, uh, if you weren't there two weeks ago, then you can check out on the podcast, inshallah Allah the recording. So, Allah addresses the scholars of the Bani Israel. Ayah 47 onwards, now Allah is addressing all of the Bani Israel. Now Allah is addressing all of the Bani Israel. 47. namtu anni ala So same address. O Bani Israel, remember the favor I'd bestowed upon you? العالمين, and I favored you over everyone else, over all of the alameen. No other nation received the same amount of prophets that you had. No other nation received the amount of divine promise that you had, the miracles that you had. All of this was coming from Allah Azza wa Jal. So Allah is having them remember the favor. And he's establishing this precedence of the nation of the divine favor, that this is a true thing that existed. But then afterwards, immediately, after this, so a person might think, uh, be a bit prideful, like, oh yeah, I do remember that. We are the chosen people, right? Then Allah says, وَاتَّقُوا يَوْمًا Completely changes it. Fear and be mindful of the day that no one will be able to benefit or uh, save anyone else. And there is no intercession, intermediary, any advocate, any lawyer that will be able to be of use to anybody. And there will be no ransom being even able to pay, no bail or anything like this. And there is absolutely no aid on this day. So right after Allah is saying, remember your favor, then Allah says, and be mindful of the day. What does this mean? It's refuting this concept that they still have to this day, which is that they are the chosen people just by virtue of their ethnicity. Just by virtue of their ethnicity. But Allah is reminding them the point of the favor. Is not that you're God's chosen person can use so you can do whatever you want. No, bilaks. Actually, you have been receiving this favor, so you are responsible for it. And you will be accountable for how you used it and how you responded to it. And so Allah is showing the Bani Israel here. Yes, this is the precedent. You were the chosen people. But that wasn't something for you to then become haughty and think, oh yeah. I don't need to do anything, the whole world is for me now, and to become prideful in that. Rather, it should make you humble and realize that you are accountable. The more the favor and the blessing, the more accountability. And this is an important principle and a lesson for us as well in our life, by the way, that the more favor and bounty and blessing Allah gives us, both worldly and deeny, the more accountability and responsibility we have. The more from a worldly point of view, The more wealth that we have, the more comfort that we have, the more luxury we have, the more we have to answer for. The more we have to be accountable for of how we used it. Did we become heedless with it? Did it bring us closer to Allah? Did it take us further away from Allah? That is why on the Day of Judgment, the poor people will go into Jannah way before the rich and the wealthy. Why? Because the poor person has not much to answer for. Didn't have much money to begin with. So there's no question of, did you give enough sadaqah? Did you give enough zakat? Were you being extravagant? There was nothing there. Whereas the one with wealth and luxury and power, they're going to be asked, how did you use that? Did you use it for your own self-interest? Did you use it to help other people? And so the more the favor, the more the accountability, the more the responsibility. That's from a dunya point of view. Even from a deen point of view as well. You know, if there's actually a hadith, From the Prophet, there will come a time that if the people were to do, I'm forgetting the fraction, so I won't attribute it directly to the Prophet, but I'm paraphrasing. One sixth, I believe the fraction is, if someone uh, recognizes the hadith and and can correct me. Um, If someone were to do one sixth of what you're doing, so the Prophet would be speaking to the companions, and he's saying to the companions, there'll come a time that people will do one-sixth of what you're doing, in terms of worship, in terms of, you know, ibadah, uh, in terms of good deeds, and it will be sufficient for them. It will be sufficient for them, uh, in terms of being saved. And so, from this we understand, of course, because the companions had the blessing of the Prophet wasallam, And so the standards were up here. And of course, as the time goes, and how more difficult it is to practice Islam, we don't have as much of the deeni benefit. And so the accountability is actually less. Now, within our situation here, someone, a person who just embraced Islam in Iceland, has not much access to knowing and learning about Islam, their expectation is going to be a lot lower than people like yourselves, who have access to knowledge, have access to imams, have access to scholars, have access to so much to learn then the accountability responsibility goes up as well. This shouldn't make us scared and feel uneasy and say, ah, oh, I don't want this responsibility. Rather, Allah has chosen you for this favor as He chose the Bani Israel. Realize this. Allah has chosen you. And at the end of the day, we are living, all of us, the top 5 to 10% in the entire world. So from a dunya point of view, we fit this verse. Ya Bani Israel, وَأَنِّي فَضَّلْتُكُمْ عَلَى الْعَالَمِينَ وَأَنِّي فَضَّلْتُكُمْ عَلَى الْعَالَمِينَ as well, فِي dunya for us. That Allah has favored upon us in the dunya as well. Rather than feeling shy of it, we should embrace this. We should embrace this as Allah's plan for us. And this is what Allah has tasked us with. That we get on one side the comforts and the luxuries of this dunya and the comforts of knowing this deen and having masajid and coming together, being able to learn, being able to study ilm. We get to enjoy that, but it comes with the tax, the zakat, zakat of ilm, the zakat of, of knowledge, the zakat of wealth. That we must use this in a way that's pleasing to Allah. Ayah 49. So Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala addresses the Bani Israel and summarizes it there. It's interesting. It's almost like a bait and switch, right? It's like, remember, I have favor upon you. I favored you. You are the chosen people. And it's like, yeah. Keep going. <laughs> then right after, وَاتَّقُوا la tujzi Do you think that this favor was just something that was just arbitrary? No. This is a point of now, you are meant to now take responsibility for this favor. Um, then Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala, this is what I was saying about the highlights. This is the recap, season recap of everything that happened before. Now Allah is going to be referencing it in just these flashes, just these flashes, just these highlights. So Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala says, Remember when we saved you from the uh, followers of Fir'aun who were torturing you and who were persecuting you? They would slaughter your babies and they would keep your females alive. And in that was a great trial and test from Allah. SWT. So the first thing Allah mentions and references and summarizes the whole episode of Bani Israel versus Fir'aun in just one ayah here. And says, remember this. And that's that flash there. And later in the Quran, Allah will say it in detail. But this is the preview. This is the trailer. Allah is just giving the general gist. Remember that. وَدْفَرَقْنَا al الْبَحْرِ And remember, so now Allah paints that picture. And now remember how Allah saved you from that. The trial of Fir'aun, and Allah saving you from the Fir'aun. With faraqna bikum al-bahar. Not just that, Allah saved you with one of the greatest miracles in human history. With faraqna Bikumul bahar When Allah split the sea. فَنْجَيْنَاكُمْ وَأَغْرَقَنَا آلَ فِرْعَوْنَ وَأَنْتُمْ تَنْظُرُونَ And, we saved, you, and uh, uh, we saved you, and we drowned the followers of Fir'aun. وَأَنْتُمْ تَنْظُرُونَ And you were watching, you all saw it. You witnessed this with your own two eyes. Then Allah continues. With Musa Layla. As you can see, Allah is mentioning this very quickly. Allah is summarizing the chronicles of the Bani Israel. Uh, and giving the important uh, points and the highlights. With, Musa Layla. So after that, then we took Musa with us for 40 nights. Excuse me. Thumma min wa antum so we took Musa alayhi for 40 nights, and that was a retreat with Allah, he spoke with Allah, and Allah gave him revelation, Allah gave him the commandments. And whilst this was happening, you lot took the golden calf as an idol. It's not mentioned uh, golden here, but it's mentioned the calf as the idol. And this is the story, it's in the Bible as well, of the Bani Israel, essentially, as they are going through and traveling through the desert, In search of the promised land of Jerusalem al quds in Palestine, they are seeing the idolatry around them from the Canaanites and the Amalekites and all these different indigenous populations that are in the region. And they're saying, All these guys have these really cool idols. We have nothing. We have absolutely nothing. We're just praying to some invisible deity. And so then when Musa was gone, they went and they made this idol. Now, what's actually interesting is in the Bible, it blames, they blame Harun for being part of this and actually building the idol and whatnot. And the Qur'an actually absolves Harun So this is one of the examples of the Qur'an being Muhayman, coming in and redacting, editing, and showing where it was wrong and where it was correct. So, وَأَنْتُمْ ظَالِمُونَ So the trial of Fir'aun, being saved from Fir'aun, the trial of idolatry, then ثُمَّ عَفَوْنَا عَنْكُمْ مِنْ بَعْدِ ذَلِكْ لَعَلَّكُمْ Then Allah even forgave you after that. Then being saved from the idolatry. لَعَلَّكُمْ تَشْكُرُونَ So that you can be grateful. This is a beautiful point here. SubhanAllah, we think about gratitude and shukr in relation to worldly blessings. Here the shukr is connected to the afu of Allah, the pardon of Allah. We don't think about gratitude in this sense. Being grateful of the blessings we receive Despite our sins. That's the point. That Allah has pardoned and overlooked so much of the sins that we've accumulated over the years. He still blesses you with that car. He still blesses you with the house. He still blesses you with health. He still blesses you with eyesight. He still blesses you with your tongue, even though it has been said to gossip, slander, backbite, lie, whatever it may be. With the eyes, even though it's looking at whatever it's looking at. With the ears, it's listening and it's eardropping. Allah continues to bless at every moment that, despite the sins. So we should be grateful in Allah's forgiveness, in Allah's grace, and Allah's mercy. So this is an important aspect of shukr here. And uh, Ayah 53, with آتَيْنَا Musa al وَالْفُرْقَانَ wal Furqanah And when we gave Musa the Kitab, and the Mufassirun pretty much say that this Kitab is the Torah, is the Torah. So when we gave Musa the Torah, the, the, the Kitab, wal Furqan and the Furqan la'allakum tahtadoon, so that you can be guided. So Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala saved them from oppression and gave them political security. Then Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala saved them from the idolatry and gave them that kind of, you can say, spiritual security. Then Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala blessed them with guidance so that they don't have to fall into these things and they know exactly what is right and what is wrong. Now, what is the furqan? Uh, what is the furqan? Here, the mufassirun, the they differ. Some of the fasurun say that the furqan here is referring to the miracle that was given, which was the splitting of the sea. Others say that the Furqan here is the help that Allah gave the Bani Israel as they conquered their enemies, as they are going to come later on. Um, furqan, of course, means the, the, from Farak, which means difference or distinct, distinction. Furqan is that which distinguishes between right and wrong, between truth and falsehood. And so Allah gave the Kitab and the Furqan. Allah gave the scripture, the guidance, and Allah gave something that made it clear that that guidance was true. That's the idea the miracle or whatever it may be uh, لَعَلَّكُمْ tahtadun so that you can be guided so that you can be guided hidayah ayah 40, 54 with musa يَا قَوْمِ إِنَّكُمْ ظَلَمْتُمْ أَنفُسَكُمْ الْعِجَلِ fatubu إِلَىٰ بَارِئِكُمْ فَقَتُلُوا أَنفُسَكُمْ ذَلِكُمْ خَيْرٌ لَكُمْ عِنْدَ بَارِئِكُمْ فَتَاب عليكم إنه هو التوار ayah this ayah is actually you'll find this referenced in the, in the biblical literature as well that after they did what they did with the golden with the with the calf, they essentially were commanded by Allah to, and this is mentioning here, to actually uh, execute the people who were the chief people of bringing together this plan of idolatry. And so this execution was carried out, and you see this in the Bible. In the Bible, it says Musa alayhi salam and the Levites, which was his kind of. Uh, tribe from the nations of the Bani Israel, the Levites and Musa alayhi they went and they killed 3,000 people. 3,000 people it is said from the Bible, Allah know how many people it really was. Um, but Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala said that this was what needed to happen. And then, fataba alaykum, and then Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala accepted the repentance. So, on one hand, Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala will forgive. On the other hand, there's going to be an expiation. Now, this, uh, issue here of the execution, of course, was because of the treason that had occurred and trying to change the religion and make it into something that was idolatrous. And this as I said, not something in the Qur'an, this is from the biblical story itself of what happened. Um, so that's one highlight and snippet there. With قُلْتُمْ يَا مُوسَىٰ لَن نُؤْمِنَ لَكَ حَتَّىٰ نَرَىٰ And when you all said to Musa, we're not going to believe you until we see Allah directly. So here Allah says that Bani Israel asked Musa Alayhi we need to see Allah now we don't believe you anymore even though we saw the, the sea split and everything we need to see Allah ourselves this is the demands of the Bani Israel in the Bible you see it's translated they grumbled at Musa and they grumbled towards Allah. That's what it's, it's described. Then it says here, Allah took them with a sa'iqah, with a thunderbolt, وَأَنْتُمْ tamburun, And you were then seeing, Then Allah resurrected them all. tashkurun, So you can be grateful. So you can be grateful. Now, what's interesting with this uh, verse here is that in the Bible actually it's a bit unclear. Because some say that, one verse says, oh, as a punishment for taking the calf as an idol, you have to kill each other, or you have to kill and execute the people. Another one says, they were taken by a thunderbolt. But here the Qur'an comes and it makes it clear. These were two separate instances. One was in relation to the calf, and the other one was in relation to the request to see Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala. So we see here the Qur'an is correcting what came before. تشكرون, as we said, then Allah resurrected you, and so you can be grateful. So now Allah mentions the gifts that came to them. Manna and salwa from the sky. Quail and bread, literally coming from the sky. Consume and eat from the pure things that we have bestowed upon you. We did not. Uh, wrong them, but rather they wrong themselves. Now, here now, Allah is mentioning economic prosperity that was given to them. Economic prosperity now, and the food that was given to them. Um, what's an uh, interesting point here this is a phrase that's repeated in the Quran Eat the pure things that we've provided. And Allah will say this or يَأَيُّهُ or يَأَيُّهُ nabi. Allah addresses the Prophet, Allah addresses the Bani Israel, Allah addresses mankind, Allah addresses the believers, and there's this command to consume the pure things in this world. Now, when it comes to this aspect, this is an important distinction between Islamic spirituality and other forms of spirituality. For us, the world is not problematic per se. That all of the food and all of the blessings is not the problem per se. In fact, Allah encourages us, yes, eat, consume, this is the point of this world, what is pure. But the point is that the human appetite goes beyond what is moral and ethical and will consume what is unethical through greed, through lust, through aggression, through dominance, taking other people's stuff or going into extravagance or being exploitative or... uh, uh, you know, be, having twisted kind of sense of, uh, 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 of of morality and ethics in regards to food items and what you're eating and what you're not eating and all these sorts of things. And so because of that, that's why Allah SWT sends down the laws in the sharia to guide and to guide us to the ethical and moral way and methodology and path of living in this world. Because this world is a world of consumption. We're constantly consuming. We consume food, we consume information, we consume, we get goods, we enjoy goods, all these sorts of things. And so the point is not to stop the consumption, but the point is to do so ethically, morally, and spiritually. And that is the point of laws. You know, a lot of people ask this question, why does religion have all these rules? Why is this halal and haram? this arbitrary set of like laws and rules of what's what's not allowed. It all has to do with this one uh, verse here. And later on we'll see, Allah will say, And don't follow the footsteps of shaitan. What does that mean? That the purity and pure consumption and pure living in this world, a person is inevitably going to be deviated and taken away by the shaitan. The shaitan will take your desires by the rain and direct you to what is not allowed, of within the bounds of marriage, for example, relationships, within the bounds of food, within the bounds of money and wealth, within the bounds of inheritance and giving, within the bounds of whatever it may be. And so we are meant to go to Allah through this world. We're not meant to shun it. And that's the other thing. People think, oh my goodness, all this worldly thing and all the haram and everything like this, this world is all haram. No, that's not the point. The world is halal, but you make it haram by manipulating, distorting, and perverting this world that Allah has made already pure at its default. And the revelation and laws tell us how to keep everything pure, and to make our consumptions pure, and make our life pure. And if you look at subhanAllah, all the systems of the sharia, and how it governs everything, it saves human beings from so much heartbreak, from so much, uh, from many problems, from uh fighting from injustice from whatever it may be so that's the idea here kulum min tayibati ma razaqnakum um now ayah 58 allah subhanahu wa ta'ala says wathul nadkhulu hadhihi alqaryata fakulu minha haythu shi'tum ragadu wadkhulul baba sujada waqulu hatta naghfil lakum khatayaakum wa sanazidu almuhsinin this is a very interesting verse And remember when we said, so again, and as you can see, it's flashes of anecdotes, right? This happened, and this happened, and this happened. But the, the theme is very clear. The theme is very clear in each of these. It's this idea that Allah is giving you favor, showing you miracles, and you're responding in this way. You're responding with rebellion. You're responding with disobedience. You're responding with kufr. You're responding in this particular way. So now Allah says, and remember, when we told you and commanded you أُدْخُلُوا هَذِهِ القرية, Enter this city. فَكُلُوا مِنْهَا رَغَدًا وَدْخُلُوا الْبَابَ سجداً. And consume and eat wherever you wish and enter into its gates. سُجْجَدًا سَجْدًا Prostrating meaning humbly. Humble towards Allah for the victory. وَقُولُوا حِطَّةٌ Or وَقُولُوا حِطَّةً And say حِطَّة. حِطَّة is basically like to relieve your burden. So, the Mufassirun say here this is basically ask Allah for forgiveness. That you've accumulated so much sin, and Allah has now blessed you with the first you know, city that you are now able to enter into and, and possibly even settle into. Allah has blessed you with this despite all your sins. So, enjoy it. Allah is saying to the first. Look at how merciful Allah is, right? Enjoy it first. Enjoy it. But be humble and ask for forgiveness. If you just do that, we'll forgive all these sins. And you can enjoy it. وَسَنَزِيدُ الْمُحْسِنِينَ And we will increase the muhsineen. Now, what's really interesting, so in the books of Tafsir, what is this city? What is this city? The books of Tafsir, they say different cities, but what seems to be most correct, is that it is Jericho. Jericho. Jericho is in the modern day West Bank. Jericho is said to be the oldest continually inhabited city in the entire world. Jericho in the Bible it's known for the walls of Jericho the walls of Jericho are basically these walls that surrounded the city and uh, uh, Yusha or Joshua, Yusha alayhi salam it is said in the Bible, led this army uh, whilst Musa alayhi salam was there making dua and pleading to Allah as well but not directly part of it and they would circle around and they it says in the Bible, blow their horns and what not, and then As they screamed, the walls of Jericho broke. Now, here's the interesting thing. In the Bible it says, Then God said to them, Kill every man, woman, child, and leave no one except this one uh, lady, whose name was Rahab, um, because she had helped them in terms of getting intel. But everyone else, kill all the men, women, children. Now, it's very interesting, because you think, subhanAllah, like... Allah is commanding them to do this? Now look at this verse. Look at this verse. Do you see how Allah is now showing what the truth is? When we said, enter into the qariya, we said, fakulu mina aytu ragadan. Enjoy all of the blessings around it. And enter into the gate humbly. And asking Allah for forgiveness. There's no command here, the Qur'an didn't say, and then kill everyone there. In fact, then after the verse, after Allah says, فَبَدَّلَ الَّذِينَ ظلموا قَوْلًا غَيْرَ الَّذِي لهم. The people who did the oppression, which seems to be the ones who went and killed everyone in that city, right? What did they do? They changed the words that were commanded to them. And they said, oh Allah commanded us to do this. And they committed this great atrocity. But Allah did not command that. Allah asked them to be humble, to enter in humbly and ask Allah for forgiveness. Allah did not command to kill every man, woman, and children. And according to the Quran, there's no mention of this. But rather, they changed the words. And so you see, this is this thing in the Bible. This ethic of when you go in to conquer a city, you kill every man, woman, children, and leave no one. And they claim that, This is what God has said. But now Allah says, That actually they changed it completely. And we actually asked them to enter with humility. And they chose to enter with pride and killing and massacring everyone. So Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala refused this idea. And why is this obviously very um, relevant? And you look at many of the IDF, of course, and the generals, this is the mentality that they have. This is the exact mentality that they have. Netanyahu himself, he said, We are now fighting the Amalekites. And who are these? Who are these people? These are the pagans of that land that supposedly in the Bible, it said, go and kill every man, woman and child. This is the ethic that they distorted in their scriptures about what they are meant to do when they come. And Allah is making that very clear that the people who are doing the wrong and the oppression and spreading in the land, Allah didn't command them to do this, but rather they changed the words completely. And we see this as the justification here. Now, um, we'll end with this. uh, We'll end with this. And what I want to say as well, um, there's a very important uh, issue as well that I want to come uh, circle back to. uh, And that is the issue of the golden, the calf, and the fact that the Bani Israel essentially made an idol because they wanted to fit in, because they saw another culture with something that was foreign to theirs, and they said, that looks nice, I want that in ours as well. So they changed their religion as a result. Now, this is an important point for us as well to learn, because we are a minority living, of course, in a dominant culture. And so we have to be weary of falling into the same trap again, the inferiority complex, by trying to take another culture and supplanting it onto Islam. But rather Islam and the worship of Islam and the ibadah of Islam is complete. And so we don't need to engage in this bida'a, which is what the Bani Israel did. They created this religious innovation. And so this is a lesson of bid'ah for us and a warning against bid'ah for us. But the other thing is this idea of assimilating to a culture as well. Now, we can go on many different levels in the Western cultural influence. uh, And of course, coming from Western culture is this uh, very strong focus on liberalism and how that would affect kind of Western Muslims and Western Islam. We can go into that. We've actually discussed this in the past as well in Faith Circle. It's actually on YouTube. We have a whole lecture on this the issue of liberalism. But I actually want to attack it from another angle, and it's something that's relevant to our activism with Palestine. Now, the way we frame our understanding of the issue is sometimes influenced by the dominant culture. And we are just absorbing the way that the Western liberal secular paradigm of looking at this oppression, and we are using that type of language and thinking in that type of way. What do I mean by this? So, the question is, the issue of Palestine and Israel Is it a humanitarian issue? Is it a moral issue? Is it a political issue? Or is it a religious issue? And you'll see people, even Muslims will say, this is not a religious issue, stop calling it a religious issue. You'll see some Muslims say, this is not, don't worry about this, about the politics of it, and the moral aspect of it, and no, none of this, it's just purely a religious issue, they just need to reform themselves, and subhanAllah, there was that video of subhanAllah, one of the, the uh literally called out and said, was calling them to follow a very narrow kind of, basically in the sectarianism, to follow their aqidah and say, that is your problem, you're not doing this. And once you follow your aqidah, then everything will come forward. And they said, you must do uh, resistance بالسunah, بالسunan, with the sunnah. Uh, and then uh, you see the, the response to him. Everyone went around and they basically said, Uh, you must resist with silence and just keep your mouth shut, essentially. But anyways, so some make it like this. Um, So what is this issue? And what's the way that we understand And what's the way that we're meant to frame it? What's the way we're meant to frame it? No doubt, there are all these different layers in Palestine. No doubt, there is a humanitarian crisis. And that is something that every person, you don't have to be a Muslim, to understand and recognize. And the humanitarian crisis particularly emerges in the aggression and the acute flares of the continual Israeli domination in the region. So that's the humanitarian issue. That's very clear. It is a humanitarian issue. But number two, it's also a moral slash political issue. What I mean by that? It's not just because babies are being killed and children are being killed, that this is something now, uh, uh, Palestine is a worthy of a cause. Even if no one was killed, the moral and political angle of a colonial force oppressing and occupying and blockading a region, that is also a cause to support Palestine. Has nothing to do with the human, even if they were living and they were not dying and they had, you know, they're, they're giving them their electricity and their food and everything like this, even though they're controlling it. The very fact that they're controlling it, the very fact that they're controlling the movement, the very fact that they're continuing to settle, even if it doesn't affect their livelihood, that is a moral and political issue. And that is part of it as well. Now, the third part, and this is the part we can't lose as Muslims. Is this a religious issue? I don't know how anyone can doubt that this is not a religious issue. When the justification in America, in the White House, in Congress, when people are asked, why do you support Israel? What is the justification? It's theological, because my Bible says so. Most of the people that are there, why do they think they have the right to occupy that land to begin with? Because they think the Bible has given them that right. They think God has given them that land. They think through these verses and these scriptures that are distorted and not correct and ahistorical and and also uh, uh, it's also... um, abrogated, Mo. khairan, abrogated old, that was the word, it's an old, it's old news right and so they are using this as justification to continue that, what's the, can, you can imagine honestly I always think to myself for many years I thought to myself like how can you as a person mock the kids and the babies that are being killed, like I haven't seen that in any other war conflict, nobody does that nobody does that how do you feel that it's okay for you to go from Brooklyn to go all the way to this land that you have no connection to, literally show up to someone's house and say, yeah, it's mine now. If I didn't, I'm not gonna steal it, then someone else is gonna steal it. What is driving them this? It's theology. It's religion. That is the issue. Don't listen to people who try to remove religion from everything because they're secular and they hate religion, they hate God, and they would rather it have nothing to do with this. This is a religious issue. What is the reason why they are doing what they are doing and thinking that it's okay, and their moral conscience is not there? They're using theological arguments. They think that they have a right to that land because of some bloodline and some ethnic affiliation. Theologically, we respond through the Qur'an itself by saying the Qur'an responds to them. They say if you're a true Christian, then you're guided. Or they say, um, you know, all these different things about being part of this ethnic club. Allah makes it clear the covenant, the promise of prosperity, and the promise of the land of Palestine itself it doesn't have anything to do with your bloodline, but it has everything to do with who is following the morals, the ethics, the spirituality, and the belief of Ibrahim. Alayhi salam. Who is following the latest of the revelation? Who is the one that has most right to Ibrahim? Who has most right to Ibrahim and his promise and his covenant? Allah says, Hadhan Nabi is the one who follows him. Amanu, and this prophet and those who believe before him. And so theologically, we reject this idea that they have a right to this land because they're the Bani Israel. From a theological point of view, we reject it. And we have reasons from our revelation. And even from within their revelation to show that it is incorrect. And so there is a clear theological religious dimension to it when you look at what's happening. It's the only complete way to understand it. So we'll end with that, uh, inshallah ta'ala, and we'll end our kind of Obani Israel series with that as well. Um, And so the key takeaways from this series is, of course, to understand that, number one, all the things that Allah addresses the Bani Israel to apply to us as well as, as believers and as Muslims and as the Ummah of the Prophet We have a tendency within us to possibly deviate in that pathway as well. To be people who are stubborn in times of prosperity. To be people who rebel when all the good has come to us. To be people who are not grateful. To be people who are impatient. To be people who innovate and, 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 you know, uh, uh, and bring about bid'ahs you know, in our religion. Uh, people who distort scripture, people who change scripture, people who try to change the laws and these sorts of things and manipulate the religion to serve their own personal aims. All these different things can apply to Muslims as well. That's point number one. Point number two is that we see that Allah is appealing to Bani Israel and we see and we understand and we contextualize that what's happening now, subhanAllah, is a clear extension, extension, extension of the people that Allah is addressing here. Same tactics the propaganda, the lying, the, the smear campaigning, hiring actresses to show that you're a nurse in the Shifa hospital, and that, you know, Hamas is there and is taking over the, 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 the hospital, making this fake video that's then shown to be fake, and nobody's ever seen this person ever work in that hospital. All this fake stuff that people are putting forward. it's the same playbook, it's the strange strategies here. Number three, and this is the important point as well, that we realize that Allah is not unaware of what is happening. Allah is not unaware of what is happening. And I want to conclude with this point, and that is that, Alhamdulillah, the surge of interest, passion, zeal, and enthusiasm for this uh, issue has been tremendous. The activity has been sensational. The mobilization has been very hopeful and optimistic for our community. Having said that, there's serious concerns of sustainability. We are in it for the long run. This is not just a thing that's for two months and that's it. And this is not just a thing that's just for Palestine and that's it either. We have seen in the last few months, the true strength of this Ummah. Many people always say the Ummah is weak. The Ummah is, is completely worthless. The Ummah has no teeth. The last two months have shown the Ummah over the entire world does actually have power, does have the ability to mobilize, does have the ability to actually change policy. Look at what happened. The initial statement from the Australian government, abstaining in the vote for a ceasefire. Then, after all of the mobilization from Perth to Brisbane and everything in between. All of the protests, weekly protests, each week it's not getting smaller, it's getting bigger. The, the, the lobbying, the calling of the refugees, the sending letters, all of this put the government in a frenzy. And what happened? They literally changed their statement. Penny Wong came out with another statement, not as strong as we would like, But obviously, why is she changing it? Do you think she cares about what's happening in Palestine? No. She cares about the Muslim vote. She cares about the disruption that it's causing. And so she comes out with a statement to try and please who the Muslims. And says there should be a path towards a ceasefire. But that is a win. And then you might say, oh, in the grand scheme of things, what is it going to do? Don't think so black and white about things. This is, you know, this is the thing. This gen- millennials and Gen Z, everything's always now, 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 right? We all want everything now. We're used to everything being quick and everything coming, microwavable. That's it. Two minutes, it's all there. Tip of my fingertips. This has been going on for 75 years. 75 years. The struggle has been continuing. There are people who have been going to protest for longer than you've been alive. This is not going to be solved tomorrow because we came and we stormed the streets. We have to recognize the small wins here. These are not small wins. This is a big thing. It shows that Muslims actually have the power to change the foreign policy of the Australian government. Not just Australia. You look at the only everywhere else. In America, if you look in America, the Democrats are so terrified of the swing states in America that could vote Biden out. Michigan and these places that are heavily Muslim populated. That because of the protests, then they come out with this Islamophobia program. This never used to happen. Nobody used to care about what the Muslims said. Now all of a sudden, they're trying to come up with ways to appease us. That shows that they see us as powerful, even if we see ourselves as weak. And so if what we should learn from this lesson of these two months is not to feel despondent or what's changed and this and that. At the end of the day, there is a four-day ceasefire at the moment as well, which is a good thing, alhamdulillah. But don't feel despondent. And even if you have to prepare yourself for if it doesn't work out the way you want it to work out. But realize what we've gained through this. And realize that we have to be strong, smart and strategic on what it means to affect change in the global world. Sometimes Muslims have this very archaic medieval understanding of oh yeah, you know we have to resurrect some you know, foreign system and we have to do you know, we have to engage in combat and these sorts of things. Some people have this misconceived notion. You tell me, the power that the Israeli lobby, the Zionist lobby have, did they hold one sword up? Did they hold one gun up? No. They played the game. The game has changed. Yes, in the past, it was over battlefields that political power was grown and it was acquired. It's not like that anymore. The world is different now. We can't, we have to stop fantasizing about those times. And part of the reason is because our stories are, mashallah, rooted in a lot of bravery there. But we have to substitute and not think that that's the only way. No, it's changed. The game has changed now. When it comes to, what was the point? Why did the Muslims in the past go to battle? It was to preserve Islam. It was to preserve Islam. But now the game has changed. The strategies have changed. The same goal, the same virtue is now completely different preserving Islam, making sure Islam is something viable, is something that requires political savviness, economic savviness as well, economic strategy as well. Can you imagine if, you know, there are, some, there are groups of people who, um, they're the ones who are uh, in charge of the massive manufacturing companies, the massive developmental companies. Can you imagine if the Muslims were the ones that were in control of manufacturing or development? Or whatever it may be, that power and the influence would be at an even higher level. This is the game now. and We have to understand this. And if we don't understand this, then we're going to continue just with our numbers and be like the foam of the ocean. But this is the point. The moment we started to mobilize and we started to be engaged politically, that was the moment that everyone became frightened. You see, it's interesting. There are some people who will say, don't get involved in, in, in politics. It's a kufr system. It's this and that, it's bad for the heart. And I do agree with some of these things as well. It's not the best thing for the heart. It's, you know, politics is a very dirty game and the people involved in it are not the people with the purest hearts. It's not the best company and these sorts of things. But having said that, you tell me, which message do you think the government or other people who don't want the Muslims to have any power, any sense of influence, don't you think they'd be happy with that type of messaging running around our circles? don't get involved in politics, don't vote, don't do this. It keeps us weak. When we actually engage, it makes us stronger. And it enables us to have influence. And so when it comes to political engagement and these sorts of things, that's there. But also, I say this to you because a lot of you are young people as well, we need to think strategically when it comes to our careers and what we want to do as well how we want to mobilize each other, how we want to help each other out. These are all part of the many problems that we need to solve as Muslims living here in the West. And as I said, this is what the attention needs to be about. If you really love Salah al and say, oh, where is the Salah al He's not going to come in—you know, on a horse with a sword and a shield. The Salah al in our time doesn't look like that. The Salah al in our time is the person that goes there, speaks truth to power, that goes there, his phone, his, his phone calls are picked up by the highest levels of government because he's acquired a, a power and influence. And he's a Muttaqi uh, uh, you know, uh, Muslim who prays Salah, who, who is, uh, he prays Tahajjud, and who's a person of some knowledge and these sorts of things. That is the modern-day Salah al-Din. That is the modern-day Khalid ibn Walid. That is the modern-day Umar bin Khattab. Anhu. We have to. Stop thinking like trying to mimic. But we need to be like them and how they would be in this world. If Salahuddin was in this world, what would he do? He would have a plan from when he was a teenager up into, how is he going to mobilize the Muslims such that what's happening in Palestine will never happen to any Muslim. What's happening to the East Turkestan will never happen to anyone else because everyone will be too afraid to oppress the Muslims. That is what we're talking about when we want to raise up this new generation of Muslims who are committed to their deen, are spiritually connected to Allah, are ethically guided by the Quran, and are influential influential, and powerful in this world with the help of Allah Azza wa Jal. With that, uh, we conclude. Zaq khairan, barakallah uh, feek. ant wa atubu If there's any questions, uh, I'll just take some questions bin uh, Ta'ala.